When I was in high school, I was part of the debate team. Do we have any other debaters here? A few, excellent, very good. I remember one tournament where my partner and I, we had, we had a pretty good round, and so when we were done, we went into the bathroom and she and I were sort of processing what had happened and we talked about how ineffective the arguments were of the other team, how we had had some really great arguments. And the judge had seemed kind of grumpy to us, but we thought, you know, she would see the wisdom of our arguments. And as we were washing our hands and getting ready to leave the bathroom, we suddenly realized we were not alone in the bathroom. And the stall door came open, and the poor woman tried really hard not to look at us. It was the judge from our round. <laughs> so we dashed out of that door, and, and you know we just thought, oh my goodness. And so what do you do? You press rewind. You think through everything that you just said in that conversation, and you try to remember exactly what you said and, and how much offense you might have created. And of course, we prayed that she had already turned in the ballot for the round before she had gone to the bathroom. When you press rewind, you can be shocked at what you find. In our scripture passage for today, the two disciples on the road to Emmaus have kind of a similar experience. Once they realize who it is they've been talking to, they've got to press rewind and remember all that they had said and all that they had heard. Everything has a different meaning in the light of the discovery of the resurrected Jesus. This story is just loaded with delightful irony. As the tale begins, Cleopas and another unnamed disciple are leaving Jerusalem on the first day of the week. They're walking about seven miles to Emmaus, and they are having a vigorous discussion about what had happened in the last few days. And although Jesus draws near to them, they are kept from recognizing him. The verb's passive voice implies that this is a divine act. God has kept them from recognizing Jesus. And when Jesus asks what the two are discussing, Cleopas responds, are you the only stranger in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have taken place there in these days? Cleopas is accusing Jesus of being the ignorant outsider. Yikes. What the reader knows, and what Cleopas will only remember later when he presses rewind, is that Jesus is the only one in this conversation who actually knows what happened and why. When Jesus asks for more information, they describe Jesus' ministry to him, his suffering, his death, and the existence of the empty tomb, which they still haven't figured out what that means. And so in this way, Luke himself is pressing rewind and is giving us a summary of his gospel up to this point. Yet the way that the two disciples describe the events, we see their doubt and we see their uncertainty. Although they call Jesus a prophet mighty in word and deed, they acknowledge we were hoping he was the one to redeem Israel. The imperfect tense is used here. That's an action that's happened in the past, but it's no longer taking place. It's like standing in the middle of a downpour and saying, we were hoping for a while it was gonna be sunny today. So much for that. We were hoping he would redeem Israel. So much for that. 
There's a lot of ways to think about redemption of Israel. And as you all know, in the first century, it was pretty common for the Jews to hope for God to bring political freedom from their Roman oppressors and to finally put an end to Israel's exile in their own land. But as David Garland puts it, what consolation of Israel could come from a prophet crucified by the Romans and now dead and buried? So much for that. As the two disciples continued their sad explanation to Jesus, they report that it is now the third day since these events have happened. And Luke's readers will remember that Jesus had predicted resurrection on the third day. Cleopas and the other disciples, however, seem to have forgotten that detail in the midst of their grief. Grief does funny things to the brain. It's hard to remember a lot when you're grieving. Augustine said that two disciples were so shattered when they saw him hanging on the tree that they forgot about his teaching. In their conversation with Jesus, the two disciples mentioned finding, uh, the women finding the empty tomb and, and the claim that, that they made, that they had seen angels who reported that Jesus is alive, but they're still not convinced. The disciples who ran to the tomb did not see him. And of course, we have this lovely irony once again. These two disciples who are standing in front of the very resurrected Jesus they are seeking give this report to him. But they don't recognize him. And so Jesus' response is typical of Jesus. He calls them foolish and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have declared. He tells them that it was necessary that the Messiah should suffer and then enter his glory. Then Jesus began with Moses and the prophets, and he explains to the disciples that the, what the scriptures say about himself. He wanted them to understand that the suffering of the cross was not the end of God's plan of redemption. It was God's plan of redemption. For the astute reader of Luke's gospel, the reference to Moses and the prophets should ring a bell. And so let's press rewind. When Jesus told the parable of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke chapter 16, the rich man ends up tormented in Hades and he begs Abraham to send Lazarus to his brothers to warn them about this place of torment. Abraham refuses and he states, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone raises from the dead. For Luke and for Jesus, interpreting the scriptures well is necessary for understanding the plan of God. As Jesus and the disciples near Emmaus, Jesus continues walking, but the disciples beg him to stay with them. And this is typical of Near Eastern hospitality, the guest declines the invitation until the invitation is repeatedly offered. But this simple act also demonstrates for us that Jesus will go where he is invited. But we need to invite him and not let the Lord of life walk past us because we are too distracted or self-absorbed to realize that he is right there in front of us. And then in one of the culminating moments of the entire gospel, Jesus is finally made known as they sit down for dinner. He switches from guest to host as he takes the bread. He blesses it. 
he breaks it and he gives it to the disciples. Their eyes are opened and they recognize him. And then immediately he vanishes. How frustrating is that? Jesus, I got some questions for you. And this is where Cleopas and his friend, like me and my debate partner, must have pressed the rewind button and asked themselves what embarrassing and ignorant things they had been saying in their conversation. I imagine Cleopas's cheeks must have flushed bright red as he's recalling telling Jesus about Jesus's own crucifixion. Pretty sure Jesus knew what happened there. But what they recall most of all is how their hearts were burning within them as Jesus opened the scriptures to them. Suddenly, it's all starting to make sense. And so the two race back to Jerusalem, even though it's almost nightfall, and they share their joy with the disciples who've also come to believe in the resurrection because Jesus has appeared to Peter. For Cleopas and the companions, the travel away from Jerusalem and back again, it wasn't just a physical journey. It was a spiritual and a symbolic one. They left in despair and doubt, but they return in joy and amazement. Their new understanding of the scriptures and their profound experience of the risen Jesus combined to bring them new life. You can't understand the one without the other. For Luke's gospel readers, however, we are also meant to press the rewind button. Jesus opened the disciples' minds to the scriptures. Uh, which scriptures? Luke doesn't tell us. Again, rather maddening. But instead, as Richard Hayes describes it, the effect is to bring us up short and send us back to the beginning of the gospel to reread it in hopes of discerning more clearly how the identity and mission of Jesus might be prefigured in Israel's scripture. But the second time that we read it, we read it through the lens of the resurrection. And even though Luke has about 30 explicit references to scripture in his gospel, some scholars number the allusions and echoes of scripture at more than 500. Luke's gospel is positively dripping with the narrative of God. If we're going to understand this story, we've got to press rewind. And when we do, we realize this is not the first time in Luke's gospel that the power of God is made known in the breaking of the bread. Rather, this is the third time. While it's true that taking and blessing, breaking and giving the bread is common, it's a common act at the Jewish meal, Luke only describes it three times. And these are not coincidences. Rather, these occasions allude to key moments in the history of the people of God. For Jesus' Jewish disciples, steeped in the tradition of their scriptures, certain images and words would call to mind the greater story that they knew so well. Consider it like this. If you and I met on the other side of the world, and I mentioned IGA, the Wesley statue, Great Wall, Lexington Avenue, George Sunpike, you would know immediately that I'm talking about Wilmore. In the same way, the first disciples would hear in the events of Luke's gospel the greater story that they knew so well. 
In chapter 9, Jesus fed the 5,000 who were hungry in a deserted area after they had listened to, teach, to Jesus teach. In, 19, excuse me, in 916, Jesus took the loaves and the fish. He blessed it. He broke them, and he gave it to the disciples to give to the crowd. The provision of bread to a hungry people of God in the desert evokes the imagery of Yahweh's provision of manna to the Israelites during the desert wanderings. But here it is Jesus who provides the bread. Yahweh, Jesus, we're meant to see the overlap. In chapter 22, Jesus shares the Last Supper with his disciples, and it is a Passover feast. Together they remember how God delivered the Hebrew slaves out of Egypt by using the blood of the lamb to make the angel of death pass over the Hebrew homes. When Jesus reinterprets the event, proclaiming a new covenant in his blood and saying that his body is given for his disciples, he takes the bread, he blesses it, he breaks it, and he gives it to his disciples. Escape from slavery, escape from sin, we're meant to see the overlap. So by the time we arrive at the third recurrence of taking and blessing and breaking and giving of bread, Luke has prepared us to ask, to which scripture does this story allude? Where besides Emmaus, where in Israel's scriptures do we hear about the sharing of food leading to stunning spiritual recognition? We need look no further than the fall narrative of Genesis 3. Eve took the fruit and she gave it to her husband. There's no blessing of the fruit. There's no thanking God for the fruit when they're turning away from God in this act. And when they ate, their eyes were opened and they recognized that they were naked. In a profound spiritual realization, the two knew that they were now separated from God and the curse of death clung to them. In Luke's Emmaus narrative, however, the fall is reversed. The two disciples receive the food that Jesus has taken and blessed and broken and given to them. And when their eyes are opened, they recognize the true identity of Jesus their risen Lord, the one who has just conquered sin and death, the son of Adam, the son of God. Throughout Luke's narrative, we see Luke depict Jesus in light of the story of Israel. When Jesus preaches in Nazareth and proclaims that he is the one from the Isaiah passage to set the captives free, or when Jesus raises the son of the widow of Nain like Elijah, raised the son of the widow of Zarephath. But here at the end of Luke's gospel, Luke urges us to press rewind all the way to the beginning so we can see how Jesus has accomplished what Israel could not. The redemption not only of Israel herself, but of all humankind. In our own spiritual struggles, when the world is dark all around us and we are tempted to walk away in despair and doubt, Jesus draws near to us on the road and urges us to look more closely at the road we have traveled and see his presence there. 
Just because we haven't recognized him doesn't mean he wasn't with us. Luke urges us to press rewind. We need to remember the story of God. Cleopas and the other disciple did this after Jesus was revealed to them. And Luke urges us to rewind through his gospel to see in the earlier stories the prediction of the resurrection. And Luke also urges us to rewind through the larger narrative of God's story to see God's plan of redemption fulfilled in Jesus. David Neal describes the truth of Emmaus in this way. If one seeks, prays, and immerses oneself in the scriptures, then the Lord draws alongside to illuminate and open the mind. This suggests that the life in the spirit is a life of reflection on the scriptures and their meaning for our experience. From this combination of intellectual and affective activity, illumination arises. Students, when you take Bible classes here at seminary, it is never merely a box to check on a graduation requirement form. We all need to immerse ourselves in the richness and the depth of the biblical story. Just like if you have never been to Wilmore, then you will never realize that I am talking about Wilmore when I talk about Fitch's IGA or the Wesley statue. So too, it will be very difficult to see the larger story of the faithfulness of God at work in human history and in your own story if you haven't been steeped in the stories of scripture. Treasures never sought are treasures never found. As we come to the table today and we receive what the Lord has taken and blessed, broken, and given to us, may our eyes be opened so that we might recognize resurrection power in our midst. Amen.